I'm going to ask you to turn with me, if you would, to the book of Exodus. We're going to go to Exodus chapter 23, and we're going to read verses 32 and 33. I give honor to Capital Community Church and the staff at CCC and this excellent anointed worship team here tonight. Thank God for them and opening their doors and facilitating this. We're so blessed to have people who can navigate technology and make something good out of it like an incredible convention weekend like this. Amen. The Bible says in Exodus chapter 23, verses 32 and 33, I, I will maybe preface this by saying this is one of the first scriptures, passages, that I felt God lay on my heart when we moved to Quispamsis to plant the church. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, the Lord instructs, nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in thy land, lest they make thee sin against me. For if thou serve their gods, it will surely be a snare unto thee. And with the help of the Lord, what I feel God impressed upon me through his word, I want to preach to you from this title, Identity matters. Identity matters. Amen. Wherever you find yourself this evening, I invite you to open your heart to the word of the Lord. His word's powerful and sharp and quick. It's effective in this season. Even though we suffer through what seems to be a, a time of change and a climate of interruption, you cannot stop the word of God. Why don't we pray asking God to bless his word tonight and open up your heart as his word goes forth. Father, we love you. We're thankful, God, for this time together. We're thankful, Lord Jesus, for the opportunity to join collectively online. And God, it may be a different way to have youth convention, but you are in no way diminished in power and ability. All you need is a willing vessel, an open heart, and proper soil for the word of God to fall into. And I pray in the unction and the anointing of the Holy Ghost that your word would touch a heart who's listening tonight. A young person, Jesus, would solidify their identity and they would have a strong resolve in who they are in you. Bless us, I pray, each one in Jesus' name. And somebody said amen. I invite you to preach along with me. I can't hear you, obviously, but I invite you to engage in the word of the Lord in your own home. He was the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth, a relative of Jesus Christ. His childhood is vague. Luke chapter number one in verse 80, it says the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation to Israel. He wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. And for all of you diet junkies out there, it looks like he was a paleo because his diet was locusts and wild honey. He preached in the wilderness of Judea, the exact same wilderness that God revealed himself to Moses in. He baptized people for repentance of their sins, and in his ministry is included the baptism of Jesus Christ in the Jordan River. He was eventually arrested and beheaded by Herod Antipas. In John's gospel account, he's given an incredible 
noteworthy introduction. John chapter 1 and verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. John was a powerful preacher, effective in his time. He drew large crowds unto himself. His message was direct and very clear. He warned of the judgment to come with a strong, unbending call for repentance. John's message was different. How he delivered that message was different. His appearance was different. His lifestyle was different. When he arrived on the scene, he earned the attention of his generation. Luke records that John reached people. He reached tax collectors and soldiers, and he even occasionally would lock horns with the religious traditions of the day. When a messenger as powerful as John the Baptist steps out of the wilderness and begins to turn the religious landscape upside down, it caused many people to ask the question, who is this preacher? Who is this messenger. We get a glimpse of this in verse 19 of John 1. The Bible says, now this is the testimony of John. The, New, the King James Version likely reads, this is the record of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? John, tell us your identity. Verse 20, he says, he confessed and he denied not but he confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And they said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? In verse 23, the Bible says, John replies, I'm just the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. He goes on to tell them in verse 26, I baptize with water. But he pronounces this and he announces this, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who is coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap that I'm not worthy to loose. John pointed his identity directly back to Christ. And from the religious community to the unchurched, the question surrounding John the Baptist is also surrounding you and I. It remains consistent. Who are you? The effectiveness of John's ministry is directly linked to his understanding, you hear me tonight, understanding of who he was. His bold, unbending, and unapologetic approach, it was rooted in his self-awareness. The time he spent preparing himself in the secluded wilderness was time spent figuring out who he was. His boldness was born out of his identity. He figured out who he was in Christ 
and took that identity along with a message of repentance to the masses. And I would say tonight to you, Atlantic District, that John's success as the forerunner of Christ had very little to do with his brilliance, but everything to do with his boldness. In a culture where we place such a high premium on knowledge and understanding, you must realize knowledge and understanding can never replace boldness. If you want knowledge, purpose within yourself to seek your identity in Christ and out of that knowledge and understanding, it will flow a boldness like you've never imagined possible. A boldness that produces a confidence that people will see and feel and will gravitate to. Now when we think of boldness, we think of the apostles in the book of Acts, and rightfully so. The verse of scripture found in Acts 4 and 13 is powerful. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were uneducated, untrained men, the Bible says that that council, that Sanhedrin marveled, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. Now let's back up for a moment. The opening uh, words of that scripture says, now when they, let's talk about they in this scripture and who they are. Back up to verse 5 of Acts 4, it came to pass on the next day that their rulers and elders and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest and Caiaphas, John and Alexander, and as many as of were of the family of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. The elders were the leaders of the community, no doubt of notable upper class wealthy families. The scribes were drawn from lawyer class individuals, and the rulers would be identified with priests elements in the Sanhedrin, sometimes called chief priests, and they had various positions in the temple. These are the types of people that surrounded John and Peter after their arrest. Not to overlook the fact that the high priest and his family are there. These are the ones who surround two unlearned and ignorant disciples, but all of the council's formal training the power and their influence combined. It did not intimidate Peter and it did not intimidate John. These two men might not have been learned and educated like all those who they were surrounded by, but they had something in their spirit, something in their understanding that nobody else in that circle had, a deep understanding of who they were in Christ. And boldness is born out of an understanding of who we are and who we're serving. And for the apostles, it was the upper room experience that drove home the last nail of their apostolic identity. And when they poured out of that building on that faithful prophetic day after receiving the Holy Ghost, there was an identity on them like never before. It was a Holy Ghost-filled understanding and identity that moved them forward to unstoppable 
proportions. Let's lift up our hands today in our homes right now and thank our God and Savior for the baptism of the Holy Ghost. You see, that's where your identity is found. That's where your boldness is derived from. That's where the unction that comes into your spirit when you're surrounded by a culture that you think is smarter than you and has more intellect than you and would try to make you cower in a corner when you know who you are and who's inside of you. You don't have to have brilliance. You just need to have some boldness inside. Because God does not want you to question who you are in him. He'll not hide your identity in him. He has no intention on having you second guess yourself or your ability. He's not going to confuse your identity in him. There is no confusion because in him, identity matters. Because of your effectiveness for God's kingdom is so directly connected to the understanding of your apostolic identity, God wants you to know who you are in him. I pray tonight in this live stream youth convention that I'm stirring the spirit of a young man or a young woman. Maybe it's been a while since you've had the spirit of God stir your heart and stir your mind because you've not been to the place you call your altar at church. But let me assure you right now that Jesus Christ wants to be in your home with you right now so you can reach out to him. You can lay hands on each other. You can rebuke the adversary and he will flee from you. Understanding the power of your identity is so valuable, so incredible. And I pray God moves upon me and my generation to have a hunger and revelation of who we are in Christ, that I seek boldness and I seek the, the, fearful, the fearlessness of Christ in my life beyond anything else I pursue. Maybe you're watching this live stream tonight and it struck a chord with you and you feel like this preacher's talking about identity. He's talking about being called the child of God. He's speaking about being a part of the church and maybe in this few moments of the opening sermon tonight, you've brought your own identity into question and you wonder, am I really a child of God? Maybe you've Maybe you've walked away. Because let's be real here tonight, Atlantic District. It's possible to walk away in an attempt to shake off your identity in Christ. And there are seasons and there are situations while you have walked away that will bring you to a deep place of contemplation. And when you have to be face to face with who you are right now. And I have no doubt in my spirit that as you have been self-isolating and you have been quarantined, uh, that you've had much time to consider your ways. You've had much time to look in the mirror. You've had plenty of occasion to go through all the decisions of your life and wondering who you are right now. Your identity in God perhaps has come to the surface and you've wondered, am I even saved? Am I even called a child of God anymore? I want to give somebody hope on this live stream right now that God's about to restore your identity in him. Hallelujah. 
I know we preach about those who do mighty things for God, and we should, but there is a group of precious people who are pouring in a live stream right now from all across our district and beyond who you used to be identified as a child of God. You know the boldness I'm talking about. You know the unction of God's spirit I'm speaking of. You understand the value of being called his son, but maybe you've walked away. And you've tried to shake off an identity that Christ wanted you to have all along. We have a story in the New Testament. It's actually a parable found in Luke chapter 15. And the parable unfolds a story for us about a man who had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of the estate before you die. So his his father agreed and he divides his wealth between the two sons. And a few days later, the younger son, he, he packed up everything he had. And when that took place in this culture, when a member of the family packed everything up, they had no intention on returning. When he gathered his belongings and he took his inheritance with him, he was saying to father, you'll not see me back here again. Maybe I'm preaching to somebody You packed up one day, collected everything, including your inheritance, and you walked out of Father's house, and you said to God, you'll never see me back here again. Unfortunately, this young man realizes there's great implication to a decision like that. See, a few days later, on into his journey away from Father's house, In a distant land, the Bible says he wasted his living on riotous living and wild living. He wasted his inheritance. And about the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land. And he began to starve. I'm talking to some people online that you may be starving spiritually. What you've been enjoying has run out. And you're starving in your soul. Hallelujah. Hmm. The Bible says that this prodigal son, the one who walked away from dad's house, he comes to his senses and he says to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare and here I am dying of hunger. So with his heart beginning to be realigned in the right direction, Even though he said he'd never go back to father's house, even though he told everybody else, you won't see me darken this door, life got to him. Circumstance overcame him. And when it got to rock bottom, father's house became an option. And in your home and in your spirit, father's house is your option. He says, I'm gonna go home to father and say, Father, if I have sinned, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. I want to be just a hired servant. And he rehearses this confession to his father before he gets home. He pulls himself up out of the deepest, lowest place he'd ever been, a place that he thought he never would be, never Did he ever imagine his life would take him down a road that led straight to the depths of despair? Unfortunately, that's the reality of our decisions. 
But I love how this story unfolds and the picture of the Word of God it paints for us, for all of us to see. Verse 20 of Luke 15, he arose and he came to his father. And when he was still a great way off, I love this, his father saw him and he had compassion and he ran and he fell on his neck, the Bible says, and he kissed him. Evidently, the old father had hoped and watched for such a return. And Jesus emphasizes the welcome that the father gives the unworthy son. He saw him while he was at a distance. Child of God, he sees you before you even get into the church. He had compassion on him, and the Bible says he ran and he kissed him. And you have to understand the wording of Scripture here. When it says he kissed him, it was a kiss that hit him on the head and the cheek and the neck, and it was an embrace that squeezed him. He could not stop hugging, and he could not stop kissing his son. There was not this was not a casual or typical embrace or greeting it did not matter what the boy smelled like it didn't matter he was disheveled and barefoot he looked beyond the surface and he saw a son it was a heartfelt emotional overload for the father it was not a formal greeting but a compassionate almost uncontrolled embrace that was abundant in joy and excitement he couldn't believe he was seeing his boy. And he hugged him and he squeezed him and he kissed him and rubbed his head and he squeezed him. He just could not believe that that son who said he'd never be home finally came home. And after this emotional reunion, the son begins to humbly quote a very well-rehearsed confession. He had it all drawn up by how he was going to tell father what he did and then he was going to inform father of who he was. Because in the boy's mind, he was coming back, but he would never have the same identity that he had when he left. And that's what I want to put my finger on in this meeting tonight. You see, he comes back to his father and no doubt locks eyes with a compassionate, tear-filled dad. And the son said to him, Father... I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Notice this, if you're following along. The son got out the words that expressed his sense of sin and unworthiness. But before he could tell the father to make him a hired servant or a new identity, the father interrupted him. The father will hear and receive your confession, but he will not let you tell him that you're less than what you used to be. He will not let you inform him that your identity has been changed in his house. So the father interrupts the son before the son could tell the father who he now was. The father says this, in verse 22, he said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it upon him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And while you're at it, everybody, bring out the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For the father said, this is my son. I don't know what the son thought or felt when he heard that roll out of his father's mouth, but he heard his dad say, this is my 
my son. It didn't matter who else was around, how many servants or family was there. The father made a declaration, this is my son. He was dead. You tell me there was not some celebration. He was dead, and now he's alive again. He was lost, the father said, and he is now found. And the scripture says this beautiful ending to this verse, and they began to be merry. They celebrated. They rejoiced. You see, the best robe that the father called for was for honored guests. The ring on his finger indicated sonship and the ability to approve transactions on behalf of his father. The sandals on his feet being so poor, the son was likely barefoot. And he said, I want you to kill the fatted calf, which is reserved for joyous celebrations. And you'll find no more joyous celebration in the house of God than when a soul comes to the Lord and when one comes back to the Lord. The scripture says this in Luke 15, 25. His older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and he heard dancing. I think it's all right to celebrate in church. I think it's all right to celebrate in your home. Because where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty for dancing, for praising, for shouting, for singing, for clapping, for rejoicing. I don't get it for people who want dead, dry, non-celebratory church. I want people to come to God's house ready to hear some music, ready to hear some dancing, and ready to celebrate. So there's a celebration in father's house when the prodigal son returns home. There's music and dancing. You see Luke 15 records the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and also the parable of the lost son. When the shepherd found the lost sheep, there was rejoicing. When the woman found the lost coin, there was rejoicing. And when the prodigal came home, there was rejoicing. There was no shaming him. You hear me tonight. There was no shame in the son. There was no rebuke, no hard-heartedness from the father. Not at all. In fact, the father was hiding the son's shame, not highlighting the son's shame. Maybe we have, ought to have the same approach that with those who've walked away from church and who are finding their way back again, it's not our job to highlight their life's decisions or the shame in their life. Uh, really, you don't have to tell somebody who's been living in a pig pen that they smell like a pig pen. They get it. They understand it. The last thing they need is someone from their own household pointing it out to them. What they need is someone to help hide their shame and highlight Christ's forgiveness. So the father, you hear me tonight, was restoring the son's identity that he thought he'd never get back. I want to tell somebody on live stream, your identity awaits you back at father's house. He was restoring the son's identity not for the father's sake, but for the son's sake. He was saying, son, you may think you're this, but this is how I see you. You think you're worthless, a failure who's full of shame and regret, but I see you as my child. The sin can be taken care of. The shame can be hidden. The failure can be learned from, and your identity can be restored 
in Christ. You're never worthless. You're never worthless. The Father loves you because to the Father, your identity, it matters. Why don't you raise your hands in your home right now? Maybe you're watching me online in this live stream and I'm talking to your spirit. Maybe you've walked away from God but something told you to tune in to this youth convention sermon. Maybe you're a young person who's been back and forth, in and out, and you're questioning who you are. I tell you in Jesus' name, there is a father who wants you to know you may have a certain opinion of yourself, but he still considers you his child. You're not a servant. You're not second best. You're not washed up or ruined. He can restore your identity because in Jesus Christ, identity matters. The boy couldn't exist in a house where everyone reminded him that he used to be a son. The only way he would flourish back in father's house is for complete restoration of the former identity he had before he left. When you come back to church, there'll be no talk of your mistakes. There'll be no bringing it up and throwing it in your face. Father will restore you because you can't live in father's house and not be father's son. Go ahead and just pray, would you? Pray for all those prodigals right now watching this. I felt an unction in my spirit for the past little while about this particular setting and this time of preaching. That there are people, you have brought yourself to a point in your walk with God and in your life. You are like the prodigal. You said you won't see me back there again. Father, don't look for me to come home. But circumstances did not play out how you thought they would. And now Father's house is an option for you. You hear me? There's a father waiting here for you to restore your identity in him to cover you. And there's a church family ready to celebrate and worship with you. Because identity matters to him. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Identity matters to him. Apostolic young people, youth groups, youth pastors, there's never a more important season of life that we need to arrest who we are in Christ and stand upon the sure foundation of who we are than there is right now. Our identity is put on display right now. Livestream has made our identity possible for many people to see. I can tell you from experience since we went to live stream, I have people who I never thought would watch, watch. I'll go so far to say this, that people who I work with, even my supervisor said I tuned into church yesterday because our identity is being pushed outside the walls of the church. If anything comes from this time of separation, Maybe it's that more people know our name than they did before the, can, the pandemic occurred. Maybe it's a part of God's plan to let church names become more familiar and pastors' faces to become more recognized because now, if our identity means anything to us, we'll put ourselves out there for everybody to see and take note that we are children of God. Hallelujah. Who?
your identity as a church matters. It matters what God thinks of you. And it matters where you derive the greatest opinion of your life. You see, we have a verse of scripture, and this has arrested my mind for the past few weeks. And I want to share it with you because God dealt with me in the word like this. And that's usually what God does with me. I'm hard of hearing half the time, so God lays it out for me in the word. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 1. When this all took place and things went chaotic and all haywire, I just started reading Revelations. It seemed to make sense to me at the time. Just start reading Revelations. And time was everywhere in my spirit. Let's read Revelation. And I was reading through Christ's admonition and his discussions with the churches in the beginning chapters of Revelation. And when I got to chapter 3, my heart was smitten by the Lord. Scripture says the angel of the Lord, pardon me, the angel of the church in Sardis, right? Sardis was the location of this church. These things, says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, he says, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive. And this is what got me. You have a name that you're alive. Some translations say your reputation says you're living. But Jesus said, but you're dead. And then he says, be watchful. Strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. And as I talk to you this evening, young people, this smit my heart, smote my heart greatly. The church of Sardis, you see, they had a reputation of being alive. This church may have, had, may have pleased men, but it did not please God. Its reputation came of being alive. It came from its culture. There seemed to be just enough distinction in their lifestyle to make them appear to be different from their cultural surroundings. And it seems that they took that as being good enough. They embraced, you hear me, this is what God did in my heart. They embraced the identity that their community and their culture gave them. You could say that they settled for a compromised identity. One commentator said this. <clears throat> this sort of compromise was partially due to the pressures of society. That is, if the Christians at Sardis maintained too high a Christian profile in the city, they would likely have encountered persecution. So they went just enough to say they were different, but not to have any persecution thrown back at them. They let their culture tell them how far they could go. They let their surroundings and the pagan nature set the parameters for what they could do effectively as a church. And the culture was fine if they stayed inside of the confines of their ideology of what they should be. And Sardis thought, well, if we're simply separated enough, then that's probably okay. We have some distinction. We're still a church. And that gave them a reputation in their community of being alive. But in God's eyes, they were dead. 
Because they looked to culture to give them cues for identity. And they failed to look to God to give them the cue for their identity. Because with God, identity matters a lot. So long as our society feels there is enough distinction, as long as they're comfortable with our level of commitment, as long as we uphold their perception of who we are, we can live peaceably with them. So perhaps their identity and reputation within their community, Sardis, it looked like it was full of life, but God said it was dead. It reminds me of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5. Chapter, pardon me, 2 Timothy 3 and verse 5. Timothy told Paul, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And Paul told Timothy, turn away. Because that group of people that Paul's warning have lost their precious identity in Christ. They allowed culture to set their standard. They have a form of godliness. They've got the look. But they deny power, which is the identity. And culture set the standard instead of Jesus Christ. Youth of the Atlantic District, if I could speak a word into your spirit and your churches, don't allow society to set the standard of your identity in Christ. Look to Jesus Christ for your approval, not to your city. Their works, Jesus said, their works are not complete before God, which implies that their works gained human approval, but they did not gain divine approval. And we better make sure in 2020 that we're looking for divine approval upon our lives. They were hiding their true identity in Christ. And to, how, to hide our identity is to hide Jesus. It's to light the lamp, but hide it under the bush. The Bible, pardon me, they became comfortably close to their culture, which eroded their identity in God. And I felt this in my spirit the church that rarely reaches into their culture to spread the gospel is in danger of becoming just another part of their culture. Jesus is warning them to return to what happened when they first were converted. Go back to what gave you your true identity in the first place, the power of the infilling of God's spirit, and baptism in his name. The admonition from God says this, strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. If I could tell someone here tonight in youth convention, do not let your identity in Christ die. Don't allow your precious distinctives from Scripture die. Don't allow your love for worship die. Don't allow your persuasion of the doctrine to die. Don't allow your love for the house of God in this season of separation to die. Don't allow your covenant with God to be broken because of the pressures of culture around you. I wonder if we could raise our hands in our homes right now and lift up our voices in Jesus' name right now. We love you, Jesus.
Go ahead, young person. Don't be afraid of who's around you. Don't be afraid of who's sitting beside you. Don't be afraid of the one that's on the couch next to you or in the same living room. Don't let them rob you right now of a reborn experience in Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. God wants to restore the identity that he has for you and for you to understand that his opinion matters more than anything else in this world, more than university, more than your employer, more than your own family. His opinion matters. It doesn't matter what the world perceives. It matters what God perceives. And in this season of life, I want to admonish you right now in your home to not break any kind of covenant with God. That covenant is that bond that you and God uniquely share that he gave you when you were baptized in his precious name and you were filled with the Holy Ghost by evidence in speaking in tongues. And by the way, that's biblical and that's a distinctive of our identity. Let people say what they want to say. Talking in tongues, worshiping in spirit belongs in the house of God. It belongs in God's house. Hallelujah. It's that covenant that God says, don't break your covenant with me because of what's around you. I told you before, when my wife and I moved to Quispamacis, that God dropped a nugget of scripture in my heart. And I find that God's given me a handful while I've been there to help me and sustain me in seasons that are very hard. And dark. The word truly is a light. And I remember being in prayer by the couch, and this dropped into my spirit Exodus 23, 32, and 33. That's all I could receive from the Lord. I didn't know what it said. I thumbed through my Bible and I began to read this. And the Lord spoke to me in this passage, and I want to share it with you. I'm not above this word tonight, youth. I'm not. The Lord spoke into my spirit before we stepped foot in having the harvest that we're having in Quispam says, He says, Thou shalt make no covenant with them. You see, up until this point in Scripture, the Lord's giving His people directives and commandments on when they go to possess the land, this is how you should live and act and operate. Why, Paul? Why did God spend so much time and so many verses on all these distinctives? Do you know why? Identity matters to God. Identity matters to God. The Lord dropped this in my spirit. Make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. Be careful, Paul, how close you get to your surroundings. I know you're there to reach them, but do not let your covenant with me break. Because my covenant with God is more important than winning anybody else to God. Your covenant with Jesus is the most important thing in your life because tied to that is your identity. And without the identity, we lose power and we surrender God's ability to work in our lives. Oh, there's been temptations to try this and to try that, but 
not to compromise identity. Make no covenant with them, young person, nor with their gods. You see, this is what happens. Any covenant made between people in the Near East required two parties to get together and agree. And in this case, when God said, don't have a covenant with their God, sometimes parties involved would bring ideas and concepts from that they were brought up and things that were instilled into them. And when two cultures came together, they would agree to allow the other to live how they want to live. And in doing so, recognize the other person's God as real. And in so doing, you place yourself at the mercy and the discretion of the other's God. God said, if you make a covenant with them, you're accepting who they serve and what they do into your life as acceptable and okay. And in doing so, you'll break a covenant with me because he's a jealous God and he will not share you with something else. If these Israelites would agree on the on the gods of the land, they simply said to those they were living with in the land, we recognize the God of your culture and it's okay. God said that's not acceptable in his covenant relationship because this is why. Would you let the covenant break? When you let the bond of relationship decay, and you accept the gods of culture into your life. You remove your identity. And the Bible says that their God will be a snare unto you. And a snare is a trap that makes you immobile. That tethers you to a place that you can't get away from. Oh, you want to get free, but you're tethered to the God of your culture. Don't soon forget, Israelites, that God gave Moses a direct word in Exodus 20 and 3. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You can fill in that blank as you see fit. Whatever has tethered you and has kept you at a distance has been the covenant-breaking factor in your walk with God. Whether it's media, a relationship, the pursuit of excellence or occupation. Friends, whatever it might be, don't make a covenant with them. Keep the covenant in place with the Lord. Father, I pray in Jesus' name. Go ahead, young people in your homes. Go ahead right now in your homes. Wherever you find yourself right now, the God of identity is rushing over you right now. And you can feel his anointing sweeping into your spirit right now. I pray right now in the name of Jesus. Would you go ahead and lift up your voice right now. Show God that you're still in covenant with him. Show the Lord that you're still and identified with him. Show Jesus that you have no indication in your life to break away the covenant 
and ruin your identity and sever the connection. I need you, Jesus. If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways. You see, God's trying to get you to recommit the covenant walk with him and keep that intact. And there's no more powerful way to let God sit as Lord and Savior in your life than that powerful word called repentance. It simply means, God, I want to walk worthy of your name in my life. And whatever I'm doing that's displeasing to you, whatever I'm doing that's allowing authority in my life from an unknown source, whatever approval I'm seeking that's not yours, whatever I'm doing, God, that disconnects me from your spirit, Father, show me so I can reestablish my identity in you right now. Wherever you are right now, wherever you find yourself here in this live stream, I want you to pray through to that wonderful gift of the Holy Ghost. Go ahead and pray right now. I know we're used to doing it together at St. John Trade and Convention Center in Hilton. You're having all kinds of people around you. And we've often thought, man, I wish I could have this at home. Well, today is your day. You've got it at home with you right now. Let the Spirit of God flow into your home, the place where God's covenant desperately wants to exist in your own home as our worship team begins to sing and praise I want you to walk with him right now in your room talk with him right now in your room if you've got to dismiss yourself from the company of others dismiss yourself from the company of others but find a place of renewal in your walk with Jesus Christ go ahead young person Go ahead, young person. I was lost.